Welcome back to season two of Black Sheep by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. The world's a very different place from where we were at the end of series one, but the philosophy of the podcast remains exactly the same. Over the season, I'll be sitting down with an eclectic flock of black sheep. The only thing our guests have in common is difference. They've all broken rules to make change. In light of George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis and the concurrent horrendous events in the US, we've decided to launch our second season with a conversation I was lucky enough to have with Rokaya Diallo. Rokaya is an award-winning French filmmaker, journalist and activist. She generously explains her experience of systemic racism in France and tells us what it's like to stand up to the government. Back in 2017, the French government found themselves in a public-facing controversy. They'd assembled a 30-member commission to advise Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron on a new inclusive digital policy. Soon an open letter surfaced, written by an MP from a major right-wing political party addressed to the French Prime Minister. The letter strongly disproved of the appointment of two members of the commission, rapper Axion and journalist Rokaya Diallo. Rokaya was described in the letter as a decolonial feminist who was guilty of publicly speaking about state racism. Diallo was deemed in the letter to be too contemptuous of France to serve the Republic. And as a consequence, Rokaya was dismissed from membership. Being thrown into the public eye didn't slow Rokaya down. She's the author of multiple books, a podcast host, and Rokaya is about to release a new documentary called Usson Les Noirs, Acting While Black, Blackness on French Screens. Rokaya has many more accolades to her name, but if I continue to list them, we'd leave very little time for the interview itself. It's disheartening, really, to think that being an anti-racist activist makes Rakaya a disruptor. Her message, though, is one of hope. This conversation was recorded before lockdown and before recent events in the US. I asked Rakaya, how would you like things to change further? In light of the current climate, that seems like such a ridiculous question now. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Rakaya, and Hi. thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for introducing me so nicely. The name of the podcast is Black Sheep. I normally start off every episode by asking our guests, do you think of yourself as a black sheep? Um, I have never thought of myself in that way, but uh, I can understand the meaning of the expression, like uh, being singled out uh, because I'm, I stand for certain ideas that are not always popular. So in that way, I recognize myself in that description. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and do you think as a black spokesperson in France that immediately places you as a black sheep within your community? Not necessarily. I think that... Um, it it does because I'm black and at the same time I tackle racism and sexism. It's like being black and being disruptive at the same same time singles you out. But as long as you are, if you are a minority, as long as you seem uh, polite and grateful, you're okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas you probably don't want to appear polite or grateful, <laughs> understandably. So with that in mind, Rakaya, will you throw us in, please, to the first rule that you have broken?
Yes, the first rule is there is no such thing as a race. Uh, meaning that I've been raised thinking that race didn't exist because we all belong to the same race, the human race. And uh, the more I was um, understanding race and uh, and racism, the more I understood that it was not um, it was not about uh, the biological race because for sure we're all the same. We we bleed with the same blood. But the thing is that socially race exists. Uh, I am born and raised uh, French, but I'm a black woman also, which means that um, if I have a friend who is also French like me, but white, sh we are not treated in the same way in the society. That means that race is not uh, a biological um, divide, but it's a social construct. It has been constructed by history and by politics, and it means that um, Uh, it exists because of racism, because people are not treated in the same way. They are discriminated against in housing, in work to 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 to, to be hired, for example. And those a way of treated treating people differently create race. And that's the thing that was difficult to me to understand because it's a major taboo in France, especially because we have a very sad very sad history with. Uh, you know, slavery, colonialism, genocide, the Holocaust. It, not, it doesn't make people comfortable in France hearing the word race because it, really, it directly echoes with, the, with, you know, the colonies or the Nazis and things like that. And to me, using race is a, a tool to fight racism. Just so um, we can really explore the kind of political and social landscape of France, um, some people might be unaware mm -hmm. of how term race or the word race has been removed from the constitution so can you just explain that to us yes there was a, a debate um, uh, about the constitution because uh, the first article of the french constitution uh, used to say that people shouldn't be treated differently Uh, according to their race and other criterias. And the debate was, but race doesn't exist. We all belong to the, the human race, so the word race shouldn't be in the Constitution. And at some point, uh, the, the Congress, the French Congress, so the, the Assemblée Nationale and the Senate, Uh, voted uh, unanimously to remove the word race from the Constitution. And that and was in 2017. Yes. And that was... I know that it was well intentioned, well intended, mm -hmm. intended, but the result was you have no ground now to just tackle racism because if you remove race, how can you just speak about racism and how can you fight racism? So that's something um, to me that was kind of naive because it's not like it's not a magical tool. If you if you if you don't speak about race, racism will not disappear in the same way. And it's something that is um, to me kind of candid because there were there were mean they were willing to do to do well and to kind of protect minorities from being singled out, but removing the word from the constitution doesn't change the way people are treated in the society. And can you expand on that a bit? So I guess, first of all, if we're talking about society, what about the kind of systemic racism within institutions, the police, etc.? For example, I have, a, I, have a, I have a figure. For example, in, in France, you have an ID check, identity check by the police. So a police officer can come to you randomly and check your ID. And uh, we have figures that say that if you are seen as uh, an Arab, 
man or a black man, young man especially, you are 20 times more likely to be checked than if you belong to any other categories. Yeah. Which means that police, which is an institution, you know, don't really treat every, everyone in the same way. So that's what I call systemic or uh, mm. state-sponsored racism because it's an institution that is uh, supposed to protect all the citizens, but it uh, just reproduces um, prejudices that people are have toward uh, minorities and toward uh, especially men of color. And those prejudices... They come from the history, you know. History has constructed categories in which you have, you know, in the in the lower scale, you have uh, people of color, black people, Arab people, Asian people, and because of that history, because those people uh, are descent from people who were enslaved or colonized, they are still seen as not being truly French and as being a kind of, you know, danger to the rest of the society. That's the reason why they are overpoliced. And of and you know when if you are twenty times to more likely to be checked by the police, it means that you are twenty times more likely to be exposed to police brutality mm-hmm. and even more because I guess that if a white person is checked and if a, uh, a person of color is is checked, the treatment is not really the same. So that means that you are exposed to violence in a in a in a, in a way that other people don't experience. So when the letter was revealed back in 2017, trying to get you off the committee, and uh, the politician said that you were kind of raising awareness wrongly of state racism, was this the type of thing that you think he was referring to? Exactly. The thing is that uh, we have a conception of the French Republic as something uh, almost uh, sacred, like uh, it's... uh, what character what characterizes France and when you speak about the French Republic is the thing that has given us the tools for freedom for equality for you know all the the the, the values that uh, the, the, the that France that France uh, carries so if you questioned the fact if you question the fact that the republic can be imperfect you're seen as challenging something very deep and uh, what she was um angry about was the fact that I was challenging the consensus uh, saying that the French Republic is perfect and it's not perfect because even if it was created after a revolution uh, against the French kings it was also the the French Republic um, was you know the, it was uh, it was given birth in the time of in the colonial times during the slavery so it could raise very noble values as uh, liberté, égalité, fraternité, but at the same time, um, Mm. enslaving and colonizing people. That means that the French Republic has to be questioned. It had to be questioned in the past, and it still has to be questioned. And as an MP, I think that she she positioned herself as the guardian of the French values. And I think that being uh, uh, a daughter of immigrants... I'm not necessarily seen as a typical French person, mm. so I don't think I'm I'm um, authorized to question the Republic in the same way as other person that would be seen as like purely French, even I, if I don't think that there is a purity in Frenchness. Mm-hmm. And so now, or even back then, how did you try and do it? You did it so well, but to stand okay. up to the system. Um, I just try to explain my point. So as you as you uh, said in your introduction, I write books, I make documentaries. So I try to be 
um, the most uh, I, I try to 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 give tools for people to understand so legal tools figures uh, trying to reach example in history and not to be in like controversies that that are, because she she wrote a letter but the letter was was not grounded on any you know very serious basis it was just you know she accuses me of being decolonial or deco decolonial feminism I don't know I don't even know how it's bad to be decolonial because if you you're not decolonial you're colonial mm -hmm. <laughs> so you mm -hmm. I don't know if it's how can it be bad to promote the ending of uh, the colonial lens so I try to do my best in standing in uh, standing uh, with my my beliefs and in trying to explain them and how did it feel to see that letter it was the letter was the beginning actually because after the letter there was a member of the government who stated um, who published a, a um, um, how can I say a, a press release to say that he he asked to the head of the council to give him a new list of people that would uh, allow the debates to me to be more quiet and uh, serene and uh, and. That was and and at some point she was um, the head. So Marie Eklund, we we need to name her because she was very brave. She she um, she was called at the Palace of the Elysee, which is a place where the government has its offices, to be told to remove me from the council. So and at at that point it it became like a national debate. Mm. So I could see debate on TV whether you know about whether I should be removed or not. And to me, it was crazy. I was like, I was, you know, I I, I did agree to be part of a council to work, uh, you know, voluntarily and for free for my country. And it was, and, and my country didn't want me to work for, for, for it. So that was, that to me, that was um, disproportionate. It was, it was shocking. It was kind of shocking because whenever I was, you know, turning the TV or the radio on, I was hearing my name and people debating about, oh, no, she's radical. She shouldn't stay there. And if you critique the Republic, you cannot work for the Republic at the same time, which doesn't make any sense for me because if you, um, to me, if you critique something, it means that you have ex high expectations mm. about it. And, and, and it was, you know, criticizing France to me is, Believing in it, believing that it can be better. How then, after that letter, are you left with any faith in your government? Um, I think I was kind of disappointed because they could have been braver. Like just saying that all the opinions should be represented, and even if they don't agree with what I stand for, it's you know it's up to the democracy to just create spaces uh, in which everybody can. You know, can say whatever they want to say as long as it's legal. And I think that I had something to bring to that to that uh, um, reflection about uh, the digital sphere, about you know hate speech, uh, online hate speech, especially <laughs> because I, I was exposed to that. And and to me, they, they they just decided to listen to a few people who were not, who were not ready to see the country changes and to hear you know other voices than their own voices. And as a consequence, as we said earlier, the entire committee resigned. Yes. As a consequence of that, do you think the government took note and has changed their views in any way? I don't think so. But I think that they were, they were, they were, they were, 
But I was surprised because there, I think that there was this idea as uh, Marie Eklan, the head of uh, the council, was a woman. They had this idea that she would just obey and not, you know, not challenge what she was told to do. And um, and I think that they they realized that they did a bad move because it was a national controversy that become became international afterwards. And um, I think that it was the first time that the New York Times. Uh, Uh, published an op-ed that was against Emmanuel Macron because he was just elected the same year mm -hmm. and he has a very good image internationally. And I think that the title was like uh, France fails uh, facing race or something like that. So it was very not a good image to him. But at some point, I don't see major changes in the government. And have you had any interactions with the government since? No, I haven't. It's, which is weird, but I haven't, no. <laughs> so I'm just thinking about our listeners. And obviously, you know, you're talking about the government and being a kind of a member of society. Does it make you think that people should question the systems that they're in? You know, whether that's their job or anything like that. And I'm thinking about the microaggressions that you mentioned earlier. How can we kind of be aware of that within the systems that we work within? I think that the first thing is to to be aware of uh, who you are in the society. So if you have privileges, you need to know them and to acknowledge them because uh, like it's always difficult, for example, uh, as a man to understand that you are privileged because you live in a society that was built for you with advantages for you. And that if you live in such a comfortable position, it means that some other are living in oppression. And it's the same for people, you know, for white people, about whiteness, uh, um, that gives you privileges that uh, are the same privileges that discriminate uh, people of color. So being aware of that is, to me, a first step. And always questioning yourself, questioning, you know, what you benefit, you know, how you benefit from other people being oppressed is something to me that is uh, important. And, you know, yes, it, you were speaking about the government, but this, the system is everywhere. And uh, microaggression can be like things that can seem very superficial, like don't touch black people's hair, for example. It's something that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you are curious about someone being different from you, just ask before, but don't don't act as if their body was a kind of uh, circus or something like that. It, it's their body, their intimacy, and the need to be, you know, questioned before before you do anything. And you touch, you know, touching hair, even for kids, it's not something that makes people comfortable. And it's an example among others, but those microaggressions really um, are really difficult for people, uh, you know, minorities to live. And Other microaggressions are what you hear, you know, on a daily basis in the media, for example, when you hear like racist statements, it really, um, um, you know, it uh, it makes you feel like you don't belong because you have people constantly questioning the fact that you are part of the country, that your culture, you know, fits, that you, the way you dress, the way you speak, the way you look isn't really, you know, British or French. And it's it's part of the microaggression that you get. And if you add the media to what you experience on a daily basis, to the fact that you can be checked by the police, that you won't get a job, that you, you won't get, get the apartment that you could have, um, it really uh, creates an atmosphere that makes you feel and actually that excludes you. Mm. And it's very difficult to understand if you're not exposed to that. 
The second rule is don't name and shame. Um, I created a, an anti-racist organization in 2007, which name is uh, Les Indivisibles, the Indivisibles. Um, was actually because it doesn't exist anymore, but uh, yeah, it was so the, the purpose was to use uh, humor to tackle racism, and we decided to create uh, an award ceremony, which is like a kind of parody of the you know the Academy Awards, and the ceremony was meant to meant to award the worst racist sentences authored by public personalities. So the goal was if it was to name and shame people who on a daily basis were authoring racist statements on TV, on radio, in the newspapers without facing any consequences. And to us, it was important just to put all the sentences all together because um, when you hear only one sentence, you can think that it's, oh, it's an accident. It's just that person is, you know, racist or whatever. But if you put all the sentences all together, you understand that there is something systemic because all the the sentences the statements echoes to each other and you understand that they they they're carrying the same ideology mm-hmm. and at the same time you challenge the people who have uttered them and you make them just having to res- to, to to give a response to say okay we're watching you and you can say whatever you want to say but we need to un- you, you, know, you need to know that we don't agree and we can make fun of what you have said. So what are examples of people that you named and shamed? Oh, Let's name and shame them. Many people <laughs> like uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, who used to be the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are famous in France, so like um, Eric, uh, Eric Zemmour, he's a French journalist. And he's had like, uh, how, how do you say that? In French, we say pour l'ensemble de son oeuvre. I think it's life-achieving... You know, awards. Uh-huh. A life yes. achievement award. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He had one mm-hmm. because he's so good in racism. And uh, <laughs> and there is one journalist who came to claim his prize. <gasps> yes, the only one. Uh, his name is Christophe Barbier. He's the head of one of the major news, uh, you know, news magazines. And he came. And that was interesting because in the audience, people were like disturbed because the the things he said were really offensive and at the same time he was there so and why was he there to apologize or not no no he didn't apologize that's why people that's why at the end people were angry because he came i think he came and to us it was it was a way to say that i need to address that so it was a victory to us because the, during the first editions people were like okay it was well covered by the media but people who were rewarded ignored us but the one who came Christophe Barbier it, it was interesting because he's someone very famous in France and uh, having him coming meant that at some point we did have a place in the political landscape and, and what was his reaction? he was trying to explain right but that didn't make any sense and it was like, I don't know. I it, I remember he, his his explanations were not convincing at all. So I guess that's an important question. Once people are made aware of their behaviour, and I'm not saying that it's for you to necessarily have the solution, but how are we meant to? How are they meant to respond? What's the best response if someone is made aware of a microaggression or even an aggression? What do we think the best response might be? To listen to the people who yeah. are oppressed, like for example, for myself, uh, I'm 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 trying to also 
promote values of equality for all the oppressed group. And I'm not part, for example, of the LGBTQ community. So I'm uh, whenever I'm challenged in, in something I say, something I produce, I listen and I try to learn from what I hear from people who are, for example, transgender or, you know, uh, homosexuals, gays, lesbians, because I cannot, you know, I cannot uh, feel how it is to be oppressed because you're LGBTQ, LGBTQ. So that means that I have much to learn and you need you need to be humble and to say you don't know everything, even if you well intended it doesn't mean that what you say is okay. And uh, I think the first step is to be able to question yourself mm. and to understand that if you live in a, a society that is oppressive to people of color, to LGBTQIA, to women, you are part of the society. So you can just, you are impregnated by the prejudices and you can just reproduce them without even knowing that. And once you know that, you can just question the way you see society, question the, the way you frame certain things you say, and maybe not, you know, not saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, transphobic, I, I'm okay, I have a friend who is transgender, and, and you know, not resisting, just listening mm. and trying to understand what was offensive in what you said. Absolutely. I, I reckon that at the moment, particularly with, Twitter and social media in general feeling so high octane and angry it's very difficult to begin a conversation it's great to name and shame yes. but as a consequence does it just create more of a disparity between two groups or is there a version where that naming and shaming can encourage conversation it can encourage conversation and it also can give strength to people who are oppressed because mm -hmm. generally it's people who don't have power, who don't have platforms that are, who are suddenly able to to enter the public sphere because the uh, us as being uh, les indivisibles, we were not people in the public sphere. We were the, the ones who used, who used to be just... Uh, um, attacked by what we hear on TV and Christophe Barbier is the one who has access to all the TV sets so it's just a way to say that we can just build our own power and we can challenge you and to me it gives strength strength, and it also gives pride to people who need to just to be taken into consideration the ceremonies were packed people were laughing and it was a good way just to breathe at last and just to take take back the power because mm -hmm. we don't have it usually and it was just kind of a, a safe space where we could just speak our minds uh, without having people you know microaggressing uh, you know minorities and ha just making fun of what is usually very what is uh, experienced as very offensive mm -hmm. and do you think there's ever negatives to naming and shaming uh, it depends because uh, I think that uh, maybe there is something about the call-out culture, like um, because you need to allow people to make mistakes. Like mm -hmm. if you name and shame someone and the person stops what she's been naming, named and shamed for, it's okay. You know, as long as the person stops, understand and decide to, you know, to, to, to take a different way, it's okay. But you cannot like make people responsible for, for what the person have said if it's in the past and if the person has acknowledged the fact that it was wrong and that the person has decided to do something different. So I, I think that it, you need to have a room to for people to apologize and to understand that things that they have done have, you know, were mistakes. And because I'm sure I've made many mistakes and 
I think I don't, I, I, I'm, there are things that I don't see in the same way uh, as I used to see them 10 years mm. ago. And so, you know, you make your own way, you learn, and it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from your mistakes. How do you retain any sense of hope? Even after a ceremony like that, where I'm sure there's a huge sense of community within the award ceremony, but how do you go back outside with hope? We have hope because we we had hope and we still have hope because we've been able to just, uh, uh, how can I say that, organize a ceremony and and respond to something that we were not able to respond before. It's it's something that is new because usually we were isolated, uh, every person in, in at his own place, at his or at their own place, just um, facing racism without any power to respond. So it was just joining forces to do something. And it's, to me, it's a good reason for having hope. And was it an inclusive environment, meaning were there allies of other cultures there or not? Yes, it was a very multicultural uh, organization, and uh, even the host, uh, the people who who, who came to to um, to, uh, to to give the names of the nominees of the winners, they were very mixed, and it was something that was a a strength in the organization because it was created actually by people from very different backgrounds, mm-hmm. and it was something because. Uh, the thing is that when you you speak about racism, you tend to think that it's a minority problem. So you will say you will speak about black people, about you know Muslims, about Asian people, but it's something that affects everyone. And it's not because you are in position of power or if you be, because you benefit of something that you are not part of it. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's not necessarily okay to 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 live on privileges that makes people you know um sad or or uh, living in bad but in, in in bad conditions so to me uh everyone has a responsibility in uh, in racism in sexism so to people listening who are maybe thinking of someone to name and shame what would you say is the most productive way of doing that so that it encourages conversation rather than disparity it depends on the, the the connection you have with that person. If it's someone that you like, that you love, you'd better have a conversation with that person. That naming and naming and shaming the person. It, when we did the Yabon Awards, it, there were people that we didn't know, so we didn't care about you know hurting the, their feelings actually because they were public persons. And to us, it was just having a platform to to make people understand that they had the responsibility as public figures. Mm-hmm. But if you are in your personal uh, sphere it's very different because you have feelings for certain persons yeah. and you don't want them to disappear from your environment so maybe having a conversation questioning sharing is a better way to make people evolve and what about if it's someone you know if we're thinking about a structure so someone above you whether that's someone you work for or a school you're in and it's an academic above you or so the, in the, in the, in those cases, I think in those cases, I think that you need to to find someone else, mm. a third person that wouldn't uh, that would be able to help you because it's very difficult in that case. So if it's a structure, a company, or something, there should be someone in the the HR or something that that could help, that could be helpful. But um, in those cases, it's very difficult to go by yourself. You need to have allies. Mm. It's better and it, it's easier because. Especially because if you are affected by the 
the offensive statement or, or actions that have been uh, authored, you can be seen as uh, being, you know, too sensitive, even if it's not true. Um, so if you have allies, it's easier to be to be heard. Do you ever get, I'm just listening to you give such brilliant advice, Thank do you ever you. get fed up with having to be the person that gives the advice? Uh, I am, but I don't do that all the time. Like, uh, it's my work, but, uh, you know, the rest of the time I have... Uh, you seek advice from your friends. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm I'm glad to be helpful, but uh, at the same time, I try not to make my life a political struggle. It's very important to take care of yourself and not to to have every every part of your life being dedicated to a cause because at some point it really makes you you know it can make you sad or even sick so i i, I really try to to keep room for myself i think we're going to discuss that probably in more detail in your final broken rule the final rule is don't rise to debate so it means that um, being public and being a woman and being a black woman makes me very visible in what I say, especially because I tackle racism and sexism. So it means that I have very violent responses. I have been targeted by threats, by death threats, by rape threats, and it's something that is constant on social media. And it's meant to discourage uh, me and all the people who try to make points on those issues and to make them just give up. And I decided not to give up and I have had several different strategies. So I block people who bother me on social media. And the other thing is that I have sued some people and there have been trials that I won. And, uh, you know... Once you're in front of the judge and the judge reads what you've said said on social media and you have to explain what you've said, it's very different. Mm -hmm. And you have to face a judge and uh, you know the the victim of the of the threat. And at some point, those people were fined. So it means that the 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 the, the judges uh, to them to the according to the judges, they had not only. Uh, attacked me, they have, but they had damaged something uh, that they owe to the society, the whole society. So um, it, it's important to me to remind to people that uh, the laws also applies itself on social media. It's not a, you know, a, a space where there is no rules, there are no rules, no laws. The laws also have an impact on those spaces. And have you ever engaged in a conversation with someone that's been threatening in order to try and make them understand their ignorance or or not? I can get into a conversation with someone who disagrees with me, but as long as it's something that is insulting or threatening, I don't want to engage because I think that, you know, you don't do that in the street. You don't, you know, call out people in the street and shout, you know, call people names because you you know it's not okay. And you know that you can face immediate consequences if you do that. If I go to the, you know, to the subway or in a train and I just shout to a, a woman, you know, you know, I call her names. You, 
people want you know you you know you you will have to to face a response yeah, and consequences yeah so it means that if you don't do that in the street and if you do that on social media it means that you know that it's not okay and at that point i don't want to engage conversations with people who who are disrespectful am i right in thinking that because of this you made a documentary yes. about the hate yes i did so the documentary is a uh, called the networks of hate uh, les réseaux de la haine en, en France, in french uh, so it's if you speak french it's available online and it was yeah because i i was privileged enough to be able to uh, have a lawyer and to go to the court but it's not the case of everyone so i wanted to understand um the mechanic of hate on social media and to interview other people who were exposed to the same kind of hate and to make people understand that It was not okay to do that and that the law was on their side. And uh, so that's why I did that. And it was like uh, six years ago already. So I start with the threat I got and until the trial. And in the, the documentary, I meet other people who were uh, targeted with homophobia, sexism or other kind of insults. And what did you learn from that project? that uh, social media were not at the origin of hate, that mm. it was just an echo to what is already in the society. So when politicians want to censor social media, to me it's a mistake because it just reflects what is already there and uh, that social media don't create uh, hate or racism or sexism or homophobia. It just, it's just a reflection of what, of what already exists. So um, the work is not is, is to be done not only in the way people express themselves there, but what they think, what they think, what they understand from um, our common uh, humanity. It's clear you have such resilience uh, to be able to just block and move on from the people that are abusing you really online. How have you built that resilience? I think I, I was um, fortunate uh, enough to have uh, a strong, uh, you know, environment with family, with my friends. I know that it doesn't really count. Those spaces doesn't, don't really count because I, at some point I go to my real life and, I'm, and it's okay. I have friends, I have my family and, and, um, and my life is, uh, is happy enough not to, to, For me, not to take to give too much importance to those moments, but it's difficult. The first, the first insults that I got were like I was shocked. I was like, "Wow!" But and and I understand that you know when I in in when I'm in in, in France or in Paris, people some people recognize me in the street, and in ten years I've never got any negative comments, which means that you know people who don't like me and recognize me obviously. They don't even try to say something to me. So that means that, um, you know, they use those spaces because they, they, they can't even, you know, they're not even brave enough to mm. stand for what they think. Yeah, and I guess that's a useful thing to remember before you respond or before you have a reaction. Yes. It's it knowing is. that ultimately they're just cowards. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think there is such anger? Um, I think that the public sphere, the public sphere, the public space have been overtaken by a minority of privileged, uh, mostly white male, and that it's shocking to see other people just speaking their minds and 
doing so without, you know, without fear, like without apologizing themselves for existing. And I think that the anger comes from that, like, um, com comes fr from that because um, I think that being one of the few black women on on French TV, especially as a pundit, people would expect me to be grateful and to be happy to be there. And I'm happy, but I'm as happy as anyone else. So I don't think that I should, you know, um, should show, display more gratitude than, any, than anyone else. And that's the thing that makes people, make people hungry. They would say, oh, she's so arrogant. Like she's, mm. uh, who, she, who does she think she is? Because it's 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 still not uh, that common. That's the thing. I think that's the, one of the reasons why people are angry. And in France, especially, race is very taboo. And do you think there's a movement now with our generation, and I mean particularly in France, where it's beginning to change? Yes, I I can see a, a, a very obvious gap between the older generations and the younger ones. The younger ones understand that it's important to just to understand um, the mechanics of um, of domination and uh, they're, they're not um, they're quite more comfortable speaking about race, about gender than the former generations and they understand that if you speak about those issues it doesn't mean that, do, that you are creating divisions in society but just acknowledging the fact that all the people are, are not treated in the same way mm. and that it, that if you want to have you know the if you want to 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 promote the values of equality you need to acknowledge the fact that they are we're not there and yeah. before being there we need to know that there are races there are genders and there are you know sexual orientations and things like that so it feels so at odds. I know I'm returning now back to your first broken rule that it was in 2017 that the word race got removed and it feels like that was just at the turning point where our generation was speaking up and saying, no, race is important. Mm -hmm. So how bizarre, what a massive generation gap going on at the exact same time. Yes, it's, 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 it's funny because we, uh, the, the younger generation is not saying that uh, race is important because we give... To us, it's important in our identity, but it's important to be acknowledged because it has consequences. And sometimes people don't understand, older people don't understand because they say, oh, you, you're just carrying your race like as an identity. And I, I wish I could just, you know, walk in the street without being seen as a black woman. But I, it ha I happen to be a black woman in a country that has a history with black people. And I am the product, you know, what I am is a product of what was constructed by uh, our ancestors so it's uh, but it's moving it's moving and how would you like it to change further well I hope I hope that um, we we will have the freedom to be whoever we, we want to be without you know being oppressed for that like you know having the gender that we feel we have uh, being whatever we want to to be culturally wearing a religious sign if we feel like, and I hope that we'll be we will you know go to a point where it does it won't matter anymore. Mm. Rakaya, will you tell me please the one rule that you will never break? So the one rule that I would never b break uh, would 
be to be um to be unfair to other people like to it would be very against my values to be unfair and not respect the idea of justice um do you ever find that difficult yes because sometimes you need to just um for example there was a um, there was a debate about um there is a, a debate uh it's it's interesting in in france there is a in the far right party there is a, one of the head not the head but the representative of the far right party happens to be a, a man who was born in egypt so he's an arab man and he's french now but um and he stands for all the racist like ideas of the far right being himself an arab man and there is a um, comedian who who teases him <laughs> with um kind of uh, uh with with a wording that is usually used against arabs so to me it's not really fair because it's it, I, i can understand why it's funny but to me we can challenge the guy on his ideas not on his origins so it's very tempting to say oh yes you're just this and those and and that's and it's funny because he's is is very upset by that but at the same time i i don't want to go to that because i think i i don't want him to be treated in a way i wouldn't want to be treated because there is plenty of of things to to say about what he thinks and what what he stands for this might be quite a broad question but do you sometimes find it difficult to work out what treatment is unfair yes it is it is but um it is but you have it's 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 at the same time difficult but at the same time not that that much difficult because you have rules you have values and uh, and you just need to ask yourself if you would maybe um uh think differently if the person was on your side what do you mean by that like uh i wouldn't agree on any arab person being called names if the person was progressive so why is it okay if the person is from the is from the far the far right mm-hmm. it's that and how do you make people aware of their wrongdoings um which is often what you talk about in your writing and in the different um pieces of art that you make um without feeling anger um Oh, interesting. I I don't feel anger because um I don't know. It's it's interesting. I don't know why. I don't know if it's something that is my personality or not, but uh when I for example, when I speak on TV, I don't try to change the people who are around the table. I don't care about what they think. I I'm just using the platform to speak to people mm-hmm. who maybe uh are wondering or uh, agree with or agree with me but i i'm not trying i'm not investing energy to change people that thinks that thinks you know that carry other ideas than mine it's too much work and i'm you know i'm not there to educate people i, I i'm okay to share tools but you know i'm not uh, i don't want to educate people i guess the reason i asked that in connection to you, the rule that you'll never break is that you know if a central value of yours is to treat people fairly mm-hmm. 
it's so clear from the stats that you've given me that many black people in France and all over the world are treated unfairly. Mm -hmm. So for you to retain fairness is an incredibly admirable trait and one that I imagine must be very difficult to stick to at times. It is, but I think it's okay to feel anger. I, I'm not against anger because, you know, mm. I, I don't like the fact that um, um, you that someone would say to someone who is oppressed, oh, uh, you shouldn't be angry and you have, and you, you, the, the, you should um, express yourself in this or that way because it's an, an additional oppression. To me, it's okay to be angry. It's okay and it's t all totally you know, justified. You're a woman, mm. <laughs> post me too, you're a black person, you know, facing police brutality, you have all the reasons to be angry. Perhaps that expression is another way of creating art. Exactly. Which is exactly what you've done. And thank you. I thank you for it. What an inspiring, really like game changing black sheep. So thank you so much for sparing an hour of your time with us today. Thank you. Thanks thank so you for much. having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for the conversation.